Good morning. Today we are beginning a six-part sermon series going through one chapter of the Bible. And the chapter that we will be spending the next six weeks studying is Romans chapter 8. I love the book of Romans. God in his kindness gives us such encouragement and comfort and strength through the book of Romans. It is a wonderful, powerful book. But I must confess to you that it seems like every time I read the book of Romans, there comes a point in time in the text where I stop and go, wait, what? I'm sorry, Paul, I'm not tracking with you. I'm not following your reasoning here. I'm not exactly sure what point you're trying to make. There are parts of Romans that are difficult to understand. But I find comfort in the fact that I'm not the only one who finds Paul's writings difficult to understand. As a matter of fact, Peter, who of course was the most famous of Jesus' disciples and became an apostle and leader in the church, also made a comment about the difficulty of understanding Paul. And he made this comment in one of his letters. And we see this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16. Listen to what Peter said. He said, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you concerning, uh, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Now this verse is important for at least a couple of reasons. One of the reasons this this verse is significant is is because Peter compares Paul's writings to the other scriptures. There seemed to be an awareness from the very beginning that what Paul was writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was on par with the other scriptures. But I appreciate this. I appreciate this passage because of what Peter says when he says there are some things in them that are hard to understand. To that I say yes and amen. But even though there are parts that are difficult to understand, the book is still incredibly powerful and encouraging. If you're not familiar with the book of Romans, that is not a problem. I'm going to begin by giving a little bit of background of the book of Romans so we will all have an idea of what is taking place in the book as a whole before narrowing in on chapter 8. The book of Romans was originally a letter written by a man named Paul to the Christians who were living in the city of Rome during the first century. Paul was a Jewish man who was born in the Roman city of Tarsus, which is located in modern-day eastern Turkey. He was probably born just a couple of years after Jesus was born. He was educated in Jerusalem under a notable Jewish teacher named Gamaliel. And it was not uncommon for people in his day to have two names, and we see that was the case with him. His Jewish name was Saul, and his Greek name was Paul. When we're first introduced to him, he is referred to as Saul, and this is in the book of Acts. And he's even referred to as Saul after his conversion in Acts chapter 9. He's referred to as Saul all the way until Acts chapter 13, where then he begins to be referred to as Paul, and that is when he begins his ministry to non-Jewish people. But today, obviously, we know him better as Paul. As he grew up and studied under Gamaliel, he became zealous for the Jewish law. In the first five books of the Bible, we see how God gave his people his law through his servant Moses. And so the law in the first five books of the Bible is often referred to as the law of Moses. But really it was God's law whom he gave to his people through Moses. 
Paul was zealous for this law. He wanted to study this law. He wanted to memorize this law. He wanted to teach this law. He wanted his people to obey this law. He belonged to a strict sect within Judaism known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees were teachers of the law. They wanted people to to follow the law. They were so passionate about people following the law that they made more laws to make sure that people didn't break the law. They had all kinds of laws and rules. But the sad thing about many of the Pharisees is that though they studied the scriptures, they failed to recognize Jesus as the fulfillment of the Messiah promised in the scriptures. And when Jesus came and interacted with them, he exposed something in them. He exposed that though they were passionate about following the letter of the law, their hearts were far from God. They did not love him. And clearly, clearly they did not know him. Otherwise, they would have received Jesus when he arrived. But instead, they opposed him. And Paul was among those who opposed Jesus. He opposed those who believed in Jesus even after Jesus had been put to death. Paul persecuted Christians. He sought to have them imprisoned. He even oversaw the stoning of a great Christian preacher named Stephen. He believed that by persecuting Christians, he was serving God. He believed he was doing the will of God by persecuting Christians because he believed that Christians were leading his fellow Jews away from faithfulness to God's law. He opposed those who followed Jesus until the day he was confronted by Jesus while he was traveling on a road to the city of Damascus. Jesus appeared to him in dramatic fashion and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. At which point I am certain that Paul said something to himself along the lines of, oh, snap. That was a bad moment in his life. I'm sure he looked back on that day as the glorious day of his salvation. But in that moment, it was probably a not a good feeling for him. It was not a good feeling for him that everything that he had committed to, everything that he was working towards, everything that he was doing was wrong. How would you like it? If everything that you had been dedicated to, you found out you were totally wrong, going the wrong direction. His life was completely upended in that moment. And when Jesus appeared to him, he was blinded. He needed his friends to lead him into the city. And he went to a man named Ananias, and Ananias prayed for him, and something like scales fell from his eyes, And he received back his sight. But something far more significant happened to him on that day than simply receiving back his sight. All of his vast knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures began to come alive in a beautiful and powerful way. He began to see how all of the scriptures were about Jesus. When he thought about Genesis and how the seed of the woman was going to crush the head of the serpent. He realized that was a reference to Jesus. When Moses served as a mediator between God and God's people, he realized that Moses pointed to Jesus. 
when God made a promise to David that one of his descendants would rule forever, he realized that was about Jesus. When Isaiah prophesied about a suffering servant who would bear our sins, he realized that was about Jesus. When the psalmist in Psalm 22 said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He realized that was fulfilled in Jesus when he uttered those same words upon the cross. And we could go on all day, all of the references in the Old Testament that pointed to and found their fulfillment in Jesus. His eyes were opened. His life was transformed. And all of the zeal he had before would now be applied to his missionary activity of traveling to many cities, preaching the gospel, and establishing new churches. And during his missionary work, one of the significant ways he ministered the gospel was by writing letters to churches. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write these letters, and the Holy Spirit acted to preserve some of them so they would be included in our canon of Scripture, which we refer to as the Bible. Paul likely wrote Romans, which was one of these letters, from Corinth during his third missionary journey around the year A.D. 57. So he wrote this less than 30 years after the death resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And we see in the letter that it was his desire to go and visit the church in Rome, but he didn't want to wait until his visit to Rome to address some important theological issues. Specifically, he wanted to clearly teach the truth of the gospel as well as unpack some of the implications of the gospel. And I think we see the overarching theme of Romans in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, Paul wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In Romans, we see how the gospel reveals the righteousness of God of God. We see the righteousness of God in judgment. We see the righteousness of God in salvation. We see that righteousness comes to us by way of faith. We see that we are justified by faith. And we see all the hope that we have because of the righteousness that comes by faith. And we see that we are called to live lives of of righteousness as followers of Jesus for the glory of God. As I mentioned, we are going to do six sermons through Romans chapter 8, and the title of each sermon begins with the phrase, we are. So the sermon title today is, we are free. One of the things we are going to see in this incredible chapter is that there are no imperatives There are no explicit imperatives in Romans chapter 8. An imperative is a command, such as love God, love your neighbor, forgive one another, pray without ceasing. In the scriptures, we see many commands, and this is a good thing. God's commands are a good thing. God's commands reveal his character and nature. They help us to better understand who he is. God's commands teach us how to live in a way that is pleasing to him. We learn how we can live in a way that honors him and glorifies him. God's commands, when followed, lead to human flourishing. God's commands 
are good, and they are good for us. But this chapter has no explicit imperatives and focuses not so much on what we should do, but rather on who we are. In other words, this chapter helps those of us who are followers of Jesus better understand our identity in Christ. And brothers and sisters, we need this. We need to be continually reminded of who God is and what he has done for us. We need to be continually reminded of who we are in Jesus Christ. That is good for our souls. We need to remember these things so that we can live our lives in accordance with who we are in Christ Jesus. That he might be glorified in us. Our identity in Christ is a wonderful, precious gift. So we want to be continually be reminded of this, that we might be built up in Christ Jesus, that we might be continually becoming like Him. So our hope and our prayer during this six-part series in Romans 8 is that the Lord will work in us to grow our understanding of the gospel, to grow our understanding of our identity in Christ, to grow our understanding of all the hope that we have in Him, that we will be a people who are shaped by the gospel. We want our thoughts, our attitudes, our affections, our our desires, our words, and our deeds all to be shaped by the gospel. We want to be a people who are conformed to the image of Jesus. So let's pray to that end. Let's pray that God will work in us to that end through this series. This morning I'm going to be reading Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 4. Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul began this part of the letter by using the phrase, therefore, which means the point he was about to make was established by the argument that he had already made. He may have been referring to what he wrote in the verses immediately preceding this part of the letter, but more likely he was referring to the greater argument he was making in the letter regarding God's righteousness in our salvation in Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying, because of God's righteousness, because of our sinfulness, because of Christ's work to save us from our sinfulness and to justify us by faith, because God has declared us righteous in Jesus Christ, therefore there is now no condemnation in Jesus Christ. The phrase, in Christ Jesus, is significant. Paul used this phrase 47 times in his letters. It is the most common way the scriptures describe a Christian. To be in Christ Jesus means you are united to Christ, and in the New Testament there are hundreds of references to the believer's union with Christ. 
Christians are those who are in Christ Jesus. When God grants us repentance of our sins and faith in Jesus, we are united to him. As Christians, we are in Christ Jesus, and Christ is in us, and it is in Christ Jesus that God the Father blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In our passage, Paul wrote that we who are in Christ Jesus are free from condemnation. We are not regarded as guilty, and we are not subject to punishment. As one commentator wrote, we have been pardoned and released from the prison house of sin. Brothers and sisters, this is good news for us of epic proportions. But we will only receive it as good news if we understand the condemnation we deserve. If you think you are more or less a good person, then this will not be good news to you. If you think that God owes you something, this will not be good news to you. If you think that in some way you are deserving of salvation, then this will not be good news to you. But if you understand the magnitude of your sin, and if you understand whom you have sinned against, your perspective will change. David Platt tells the story of a missionary in the Middle East. And on one such day, the missionary was in a cab, and he was teaching the gospel to this cab driver, but the cab driver was pushing back. He didn't think his sins were that big a deal. He didn't think his sins were that serious. He didn't think that his sins made him deserving of hell. And so the missionary said to him, let me ask you a question. What would happen if I slapped you in the face right now? The cab driver kind of laughed and said, I'd throw you out of my cab. He said, okay. What would happen if I went out on the street here and slapped a police officer in the face? He said, he'd throw you in jail. He says, okay. What would happen if I went to the king of this country and I slapped him in the face and the cab driver got real serious and said, he'd put you to death. And the missionary made his point. He made his point about the severity of our sin. You see, we understand even from a human perspective that the severity of our sin depends on whom we sin against. Friends, all of our sin is ultimately and finally against the one true and living God. He is the Holy One. He is the one who made everyone and everything. He is transcendently pure. In Him there is no trace of sin. He is mighty and powerful. He does all that He pleases. He knows all things and He sees all things. He is perfect in every way. He is righteous. And all of our sin is abhorrent to Him, utterly offensive and detestable. Moreover, when we sin, we are disobeying his good commands that he has given us as our God and King. Therefore, all of our sin is rebellion against his rightful rule and reign over our lives. We are not sinning against an earthly king. We are sinning against the King of kings. That is whom we sin against. When we have a sinful thought, it's no small matter because that is a sin against the Holy One, the Righteous One, the King of Kings. Earlier in Romans, Paul tried to impress on us the seriousness of our sin. In chapter 3, he wrote, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. 
Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Be encouraged. He went on to say, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is how he describes us. Our sins are no small matters. Our sins are not minor offenses. Our sins are not akin to jaywalking. Our sins are akin to high treason. And in chapter 6, Paul said, The wages of sin is death. In our sin, we are under a death sentence. Death and eternal separation from God is the condemnation we deserve. Left to ourselves, that is the verdict we must live with. We are guilty. We stand condemned. The prophet Isaiah, who lived about 700 years before Jesus was born, understood and felt the weight of his sin when he had an encounter with God. We read about this in Isaiah chapter 6. Here's what he wrote. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When he saw the Lord in all his glory... When he encountered the Holy One, when he came face to face with the King of Kings, all of a sudden he became acutely aware of his sin and the magnitude of his sin. And he said, woe is me, I'm lost, I'm done, I'm a goner, there's no way I can encounter the Holy One and live because of my sin. He understood and felt the weight of his sin. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand and feel the weight of our sin. Why? Why is this so important? Why do we have to talk about the bad stuff? We need to understand and feel the weight of our sin for numerous reasons. Let me give you three. First of all, it humbles us, meaning we have a right perspective of ourselves. When we understand and feel the weight of our sin, it crushes our pride. And it changes the way we relate to others. How can we be impatient with others when we are in desperate need of God's patience because of our sin? How can we withhold mercy from others because we are in desperate need of God's mercy because of our sin? How can we withhold forgiveness from others because we are in desperate need of forgiveness from God because of our sin? When we have a right understanding of our sin, it humbles us. Charles Spurgeon once said, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. 
Also, the reality of our sin opens our eyes to the need for a Savior. When we understand and feel the weight of our sin, we recognize that there is no possible way we can save ourselves. We know that we are helpless, we are needy, we are desperate, we are weak. We understand that we cannot contribute in any way to our salvation because we are so full of sin. And so it causes us to look for a Savior, to run to Jesus, to go to the foot of the cross. When we understand and feel the weight of our sin, the cross becomes greater in our lives. Jesus becomes greater in our lives. This is a good thing. Finally, when we understand and feel the weight of our sin, we will rejoice in our salvation. We will be profoundly grateful. We will receive the declaration that there is now no condemnation in Christ as epic good news. If you are in Christ, you are free from condemnation. You do not have to fear that you will receive the judgment you deserve for your sins. Brothers and sisters, may this never be lost on us. May we never take this for granted. May we never cease to be grateful. As we understand and feel the weight of our sin, may God work in us to grant us humility, to make Christ greater in our hearts, to cause us to be grateful for our salvation. In the next few verses, Paul went on to unpack why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He said, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul was clear that the law that God had given to his people through Moses was not itself sin, but the law did reveal sin and provoke sin leading to death. In Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, he wrote, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came... Sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. John Stott wrote, So, shocking as it may sound, God's holy law could be called the law of sin and death because it occasioned both. The law cannot save us because in our sin, we are utterly incapable of obeying the law. But the good news for Christians is that in Christ Jesus, we are free from the law of sin and death through the law of the Spirit of life. The Holy Spirit is the one who causes us to be born again. The Holy Spirit gives us a new heart and cleanses us from our sin. Indeed, everyone who trusts in Christ for their salvation receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is a good thing. In Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, we read, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The Spirit washes us, makes us new, and gives us life, and therefore we are free from the law of sin and death. Paul continued to unpack this in verses 3 and 4. Again, he said, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How is it that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Because the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And how is it that the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death? Here is how. God has done for us what the law could not do for us because of our weakness and sinfulness. He did so by sending God the Son, Jesus Christ, into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh, which is a reference to the Incarnation. In an extraordinary act of humility, God the Son, Jesus Christ, took on human flesh and came into the world in the likeness of men. He did so in order to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf and to take the punishment for our sins in our place. Jesus Christ came into the world without sin, and he lived a life without sin. He is the only one who has perfectly obeyed God's law. He obeyed God's law with a pure heart, with pure motives. He is the only one who fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. He was tempted, but did not give in to temptation. He resisted temptation for our sake. He perfectly obeyed God for our sake. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law for our sake. He did this for us. His sinless life is critical to the, the preaching of the gospel because if he did not live a perfectly sinless life, then he did not fulfill the righteous requirement of the law for us, and we are lost. But he did. He resisted sin. He resisted temptation. He perfectly obeyed God. He perfectly fulfilled the will of God. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. Moreover, he also died in our place, taking the punishment upon himself that we deserve. We deserve punishment for our sin, but he came as a substitute to take our place to receive the punishment on our behalf. When he died upon the cross, he was taking our punishment. And when he died upon the cross, it was not only a brutal physical death. It most certainly was a brutal physical death, but there was more going on than just that. When he died upon the cross, the wrath of God for our sins was poured out on him. And we know this because of what he prayed in the garden the night before he was crucified. He said, if it possible, let this cup pass from me. And the cup was a reference to God's wrath being poured out, and we know that because we see that imagery being used in the Old Testament. 
the cup of God's wrath being poured out. At the cross, the cup of God's wrath was poured out on him for our sins. Jesus Christ came into the world to do what we could not do, perfectly obey God. And he came to take the punishment that we deserve by dying upon the cross. Do you see how glorious this is? God made a way to save sinners such as us without compromising his righteousness. He is righteous. He is holy. He is a just judge. He must punish the guilty. If he did not punish the guilty, then he would not be just and he would not be trustworthy. We would not be able to trust him if he did not punish sin. So it's a good thing that he punishes sin, but it's also a problem because we are the sinners. Yet he has made a way to save us while perfectly maintaining his righteousness and his justice. And he did so at great cost to himself by providing God the Son as a substitute to perfectly fulfill the righteous law on our behalf and to take the punishment we deserve in our place. And this is true for everyone who has received the Spirit and walks according to the Spirit. One of the things I think is important for us to see in this passage is the glory of our triune God in our salvation. God is one in essence and three in persons. There is one God, and he is three persons. God has revealed himself as one being who exists eternally as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is not a doctrine that is incidental to our faith. No, the fact that there is one God who exists eternally as three persons is essential to the gospel and our salvation. Without the doctrine of the Trinity, there is no gospel. God is a righteous and just judge who rightly punishes the guilty. But as I said, that is a problem for us because we are those who are guilty. God is just and we have a debt of sin that must be paid. And the debt we owe, we cannot pay. There is no sacrifice we can offer to appease God's wrath for our sin. We are incapable of bearing God's judgment for our sin. We are unable to atone for our sin. Moreover, you cannot save me and I cannot save you because we all are in the same place. We all suffer from the same sinful condition. If all of us were dropped in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean with no boat and no life preservers, we would all be equally goners. I couldn't save you. You couldn't save me. We would need someone to rescue us who was not in our position. We would need someone from the outside to come in and rescue us. And that is how it's true with our sin. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot save each other. We need someone to rescue us and to save us. And that person must be without sin, must not suffer from the same sinful condition that we are in. And there is only one. That is Jesus Christ, God the Son. God the Father could provide a substitute 
for us in God the Son, Jesus Christ, because he is one God who exists as three persons. He was able to send Jesus Christ into the world to be the perfect sacrifice for us, to make atonement for our sins. Only God could provide the necessary sacrifice for our salvation. God the Father sent God the Son who perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf and thus became the only acceptable sacrifice to make atonement for our sins. But because of our sin, if we were left to ourselves, we would never run to Christ. In our sin, we would never choose him. We would never surrender our wills to him. We need God the Holy Spirit to intervene in our lives to apply the work of Christ to our hearts and make us new. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said, you were dead in the trespasses of your sins. You were dead in your sin. A dead person cannot make himself or herself alive. As we are dead in our sin, we cannot contribute anything to our salvation. We are dead. And what does it say? Paul said, but God made you alive. We need the Holy Spirit to do that work in us. We need the Holy Spirit to come to us and make us alive. And God the Father and God the Son sent God the Holy Spirit into the world to do this glorious work for us, to rescue sinners such as us by making us alive, by washing us and making us new, granting us repentance of our sins and faith in Jesus. You see, God, has, or God the Father has ordained our salvation. God the Son, Jesus Christ, has accomplished our salvation. And God the Holy Spirit comes to us and applies the work of Christ to our hearts so that we will be born again and saved. Oh, this is glorious. Our triune God works in a powerful way to save sinners such as us. We see this in the passage that Mark read from earlier, in Ephesians chapter 1. We see this also in our passage, the beginning of Romans chapter 8. God did for us what the law could not do. God is the one who did it for us. How did he do this? By sending his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to fulfill the law, the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf, and to die for us so that sin could be condemned in him. And who does this apply to? Everyone who walks in the Spirit. God has gloriously worked our salvation. Our God, who is one in essence and three in persons. Oh, the Trinity is foundational to the gospel and to our salvation. We serve a triune God who has gloriously worked for us a great salvation. Now we are free. In Christ Jesus, we are free from the condemnation we deserve. The verdict is no longer guilty. The sentence is no longer death. The verdict is innocent, and we are free, and we receive life. If you're not a Christian, we are glad you are here. You are always welcome here, and our greatest desire for you is that you will know and trust and love Jesus that you will realize that you are a sinner in need of grace just as we are. We here are sinners. We are all wretched sinners in need of grace. We hope that you will come to understand that as well. And we hope that you will come to understand that though you are a sinner, God has provided a way for you to be forgiven of your sins. 
by providing Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for us, as a Savior for us. Our hope and our, our desire is that you will repent of your sins and trust in Jesus and be saved. God is good. He is merciful. He is love. And through Jesus Christ, you can be reconciled to him. If you are a Christian, I hope you will reflect on and meditate on your freedom in Jesus Christ. If you are feeling burdened, remember that Jesus has already taken your greatest burden upon himself. If you are having doubts because of your sin, remember that God provided Jesus for you. Jesus is the one who perfectly fulfilled God's righteous requirements on your behalf. If you are in Christ Jesus, you will not be judged according to your sins. You will be judged according to the righteousness of Christ. If you are struggling with a besetting sin, I hope you will remember that in Jesus Christ you are free from sin and he has given you the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in that freedom. Brothers and sisters, we are free. As those who have been set free, let's live as those who have been set free. Let's worship God as those who have been set free. Let's love each other as those who have been set free. Let's serve one another as those who have been set free. Let's live as missionaries in this world as those who have been set free, knowing that there are many people who need to hear the good news about Jesus Christ. We are free. Praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you for the gospel. What a glorious salvation you have worked for us. We are sinners. We are those who have sinned against you. We pray that you will help us to feel the weight of our sin, to truly understand our sin, that we will have a greater appreciation, a greater love, a deeper sense of gratitude for you and what you've done for us. Oh, help us to understand that in Christ Jesus we are free. Help us to understand this. Help us to understand all the implications of this. And help us to live our lives as free people. You are awesome. We pray that you'll help us to understand our identity in Christ. And we pray that you'll help us to live our lives in accordance with our identity in Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.